trauma-informed education podcast. Today we have the privilege of speaking with Dr. Michael Gaskell. Mike is principal of Hammerschold Middle School in East Brunswick, New Jersey, USA. Michael writes extensively on school culture, trauma and educational leadership. He is a mentor to new principals through the New Jersey's Leaders to Leaders program and regularly presents on topics relevant to today's educators. Mike has written two books, Micro Strategy Magic, and published in September 2021, his second book titled Leading Schools Through Trauma, A Data-Driven Approach to Helping Children Heal. Dr. Gaskell is interviewed by Dr. Govind Krishnamurthy and me. We hope you find this conversation useful and interesting. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Trauma Informed Education. My name is Dr. Kavin Krishnamurthy, and I'm here as always with Dr. K. Hi, Kai. Hi, Kavin. How are you this morning? Yeah, good. Thank you. It is the morning. <laughs> it's <laughs> it is a morning Saturday for us. morning. Um, but we're really excited to um, be able to speak with Michael today. Hi, Michael. How are you? I'm not sure whether to say good morning or good evening, so I'm going to stick with good morning as a good guest, and it's great to be here with you both. Thanks, Michael. It's, it's so great that we can touch base and make connections with people around the world with technology. It's the time difference. That's not much of an issue, really. Um, but no, thank you for making the time uh, to speak to us today. Uh, we might get right into it, uh, Michael. So um, this is a podcast for educators, so we wanted to start by asking you a little bit about your own experience of schooling and how these have influenced you in the work that you do. Absolutely. You know, I think it's best to start with a, a story. And that is that a few years ago, when uh, my daughter was at my parents' house, her grandparents, she was snooping around like kids do. And she found a file and it simply was labeled Mike. And she opened it up and in there she found things that didn't sound like her dad. Uh, there were struggles, there were issues of hostility, there were developmental delays, there was anxiety, and there was a lot of things that characterized her dad in a way that she didn't expect. And she shared it with me, and to be perfectly honest with you, I had forgotten most of this. As I moved on with my life, I was able to achieve things and become an educator and work with kids. And I always knew in the back of my head that I was interested in helping students with special needs, I started out as a special educator. And I always wanted to help children who had uh, disadvantaged backgrounds and learning challenges. And I'm not really sure, I wasn't really sure why until that kind of came into a clear focus for me. And I was really inspired by that. And it helped me to work with kids like, for instance, one child who I was hired to tutor him. And when I went to tutor him in, in sixth grade for the first time, I asked him to read something for me. It was like a fourth grade level reading assignment and he couldn't read it. And I went all the way down to first grade and discovered he had never learned how to read and they just kept passing him along. And I felt compelled to help this young man. And 
great story at the other end of this. He ended up graduating from West Point, which is a prestigious military academy in New York, and uh, has had a successful career. So those are the kind of stories and reasons that inspire me and come from my very personal background about why I feel it's so important to help children, especially children with challenges and especially children who come with trauma. That's a great story. I think there's something really powerful about those artifacts. And we talk a lot about portfolios in in university, but it sort of helps you really think about your journey, but also reflect on what it is that was important, I think. And a lot of the time, it's not what you did, but who you did it with and um, the relationships that you have. And those are the things that kind of stick with you. Um, speaking of which, Marco, um, congrats on your book. It's it's um, fantastic and such a useful resource. But you, you talk about um, a three-step process that um, is useful for educators to think about when working with traumatized children. Um, did you want to talk us through what those three steps were? Yes, great segue into the relationship building piece, because there's three steps wrapped into this anecdotally and research-based process that I get into. And so, of course, I speak from years of field experience and personal experience, but I also back it up with with the research. The first one is to start with fun and building a foundation, getting kids interested in your class, getting them to get to know you, getting to be comfortable with you, and building around some trust. Because one of the challenges with students that are traumatized is they do not trust. And usually with pretty good reason, they've been through some experiences, whatever they may be that have caused them to build up these walls. So we have to start to unravel those walls. So that's the first thing. And and it doesn't happen overnight. It may take a lot of time. It may take a lot of effort. And it may happen quicker depending on the person or the strategies you talk uh, about instituting, which I talk about stacking strategies. And by that, I mean compounding them, putting them together. And so it's almost like a diner menu. And in the United States, you go to a diner, there's 52 things on the menu. And where do you start? Well, try this thing or that thing and just try a few things. And if you didn't like it this time, come back and get another thing. And that's the idea here is that you're stacking these ideas together and you're increasing the likelihood that you're going to hit on something that's going to help them. The second step in that process is to give a lot of small formative assessments. And that sounds so counter to what I just said, which is make it fun, build trust, get them away from anxiety. Now we're going to thrust them into an assessment situation which tends to create distress for even students who are pretty well balanced. And in fact, there's research uh, from Jessica Leahy specifically, who talks about the fact that more frequent, shorter assessments are far more effective for a couple of reasons. First of all, learning retention is much greater than with summative and large scale assessments. And secondly, students do not feel as pressured when they have a very micro tailored specific kind of a thing that you're looking to see if they've mastered. And it can happen right after they've learned that concept. The other idea behind this, and I get into this more in in the book, is something I call gamification, which I'm sure I stole from somewhere. It's the idea that you use gaming resources to get student responses in an engaging format in uh, common tools like Kahoot, Pear Deck, and Nearpod, just to name a few, there's tons out there, many free models that allow you to then export that data. And I, I can get into that a little bit later, but the idea there is that you're collecting these, this information from students and they're not feeling as taxed about it. They're not feeling as stressed about it. And you're getting some really authentic information because it is formative. It's less uh, intense for them to, to respond to. So they're gonna give you a more authentic response. 
the last step in this process is to challenge students to set goals and specifically goals just outside of their comfort zone, not way outside of their comfort zone and not a goal that they're going to easily master because they've already done it because that doesn't get them moving along a trajectory of success, which both helps them become better learners and also builds their confidence, which is critical with traumatized students. So this idea is that you're giving them the opportunity to set these goals. I like to call it the 4% rule. 4% rule, excuse me. I found this in uh, something Stephen Kotler, who's written some great work about uh, flow and, and engaging in these exceptional experiences beyond what would normally be considered successful, in fact, extraordinary. And the idea that if you get slightly out of your comfort zone, so 4% is such an anecdotal concept. It's not research-based. It's more of an idea, right? That it's within grasp. It's a handful. And 4% is something that we can all do. We can get slightly out of our comfort zone because we're maybe taking a couple steps up this stairwell, not like 100,000 in, in a spiral stairwell and you can't see it and it's unachievable or un unseeable for a kid. So the kid is getting uh, close and moving steadily. The other reason that 4% anecdotally is such a great concept is because 4% eventually becomes 8%, 8%, which becomes 16%. And you see this compounding effect of a trajectory upward in the right direction in small steps, which is this idea of, of small wins or, or small gains that are really critical. And what's amazing about it is when I was doing the research for the book, there was a lot of literature about small wins and for organizations and for corporate leaders. And there was almost nothing about this for kids. So I said, I have to bring this into education because yeah, there's things about goal setting, but not specifically about building on small wins. And of course, it's a natural connection kids can make that they start to build this groundwork and confidence again, even more critical for traumatized kids. That's fantastic, Michael. Thank you for that. Um, it made me laugh about choosing items from a diner because I'm, I'm known to always choose the wrong thing. So I, I think my probabilities are starting against me there. Um, but the idea of small wins and stacking strategies is so interesting, I think. Um, you know, part of what we try to do in the program is offer a analytical process, you know, where teachers can think about building, um, you know, a, trying things, collect, you know, gathering some data and, and, and really thinking through, um, you know, what's, what works and what doesn't. But it's really interesting hearing you talk because I think that process of, you know, trying things and evaluating things is also a process of knowing the child, knowing the student as well. And so you're, you know, it's inherently a process of building trust as well, isn't it? Um, while you're um, trying to help them. Um, I'll, I'll get Kai to jump in in a sec, but when I say gather data and gather evidence, people often recoil <laughs> when you say things like that. I think it brings up visions of people controlling children and, and uh, you know, imposing things onto them. Um, I was curious about um, uh, your take on that and, and how we use data um, to be able to inform our work. But um, I'll, I'll let Kay jump in if she had any thoughts about the three steps as well. Yeah, um, thank you, Michael. I, as you were talking, I, I'm an early childhood teacher and this um, taking children just out of their comfort zone is a concept that's really central in early childhood from Vygotsky and just pushing them, in, you know, thinking of what their zone of proximal development is, as we call it, their, their ZPD, and then just taking them slightly 
out of that where they can still be successful, but always with the support of another. So um, the way you um, connected the the data to that really fundamental concept was was really great because we also hear in in our in our study in our teaching that Vygotsky never meant for his concepts to be related to education the way we have done, and it really puts it into um, a really good visual from an early childhood teacher's point of view of how this all fits with this data driven teaching space that we find ourselves really working in and very often conflicted with, as you said. So I think that's a really good reminder um, about how we can take kids out of their zone of proximal and you know, push them just that little bit with the support and the relationship of a really trusted other person and still be meeting the, what we tend to look at, the imposed where's the data, where's your data, where's your data? Um, and if you think about it, like you said, there's 4% from an educator's point of view, it's not as a scary prospect. <laughs> you know, it's, it's that age-old little steps for everybody, you know, little safe steps, you know, what's the rush, people? You know, just, just as they say, you know, in the, you know, young adult world, calm your farm, everybody, and just take little little steps and thank you yeah because I related that immediately to that zone of proximal development thank you you're welcome yeah and the data piece is interesting because and I say interesting and you say well people recoil when they hear that 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 word but I tie it into this whole gamification process and the idea that we can collect student responses through these games like Kahoot and they're very easily exportable and then you can track them along a trajectory and what's the most important part of that is that you're transparently sharing that developmental trajectory with that child. They need to see and know that they're progressing. One of the things that we get so busy with as educators and to no fault of anybody is that we are so worried about meeting those goals, as you said, that, that we're expected to, that we sometimes forget, oh, we need to bring them along and, and sit down and celebrate these small wins with them, which is some of the most motivating ways to get to resilience with kids. And resilience is one of the key factors that distinguishes very successful children and adults from unsuccessful. They may try as hard, less resilient, but they're gonna give up faster. I heard a quote once that if you fail, if you are successful, you likely fail three times as often as unsuccessful people. And that might sound crazy at first, but when you think about it, it's that whole resilience factor. You keep failing until you until you succeed and you refuse to give up. And if we can teach kids that one skill, it can, boy, it can make such a difference, especially for children who are traumatized. Yeah, I think that's such an important piece, um, Michael, around goal setting and, um, you know, feedback, I think, you know, feedback informed relationships. And, you know, one of the things we often encounter is, you know, when you're working closely with teachers, um, when you're working closely with the students, you can see those little incremental changes. Um, and, and a part of the challenges around translating the significance of those uh, gains back to, you know, uh, you know, administrators or other kind of key performance indexes that you might have and, and finding that bridge. And sometimes we do find people who can 
understand that that those social emotional goals are what need to really kind of be charged up first before um, you know we can get to the other things. Um, could you give us some examples, Michael, of of how those sort of incremental gains, what that might look like in a classroom, um, and how that's played out with teachers? Sure, and Kay's going to love this because I'm going to tie it right into elementary education. Literacy is the foundation of all learning. So building off of that, even through 12th grade or senior uh, level, it is the essence of what we're learning based off of. And so that feeds into every other content area. And it's so important to remember that because when we're looking at literacy along a trajectory, we use some very specific tools here that look at kids moving up a sequence of alphanumeric values actually, which tie into direct skills. So one example of that is moving up this literacy achievement from, for instance, the level of prediction, summarizing and inferring context to the next level of critiquing and synthesizing text and showing that, not just saying that a child has moved three levels, because what does that mean? We need to be much more specific and show that to children that they've gone from develop these more rudimentary skill sets to more uh, abstract uh, literacy concepts that help them change from students who are learning to read to reading to learn. And those, those are huge skills that in and of themselves can help. That's one example. Another one I want to mention is I'm going to switch gears a little bit and talk behaviorally of an example because we talked, you talked earlier about the social emotional uh, component. And there's a lot of neuroscience right now about this that we're reading about and seeing and in, 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 in the research. Behaviorally, an example could be getting a student who gets out of their seat so frequently that a teacher, and I show this in an observed behavior chart concept in, in the text, let's say 22 times during a, a 40 minute class period, which is a typical class period in, in the States. That is an overwhelming amount of times the kid's out of seat. He's both disrupting the class, the teacher and himself. And it's important to show him that. A lot of times kids don't realize this. And if you sit down and have a mini conference with them, not in front of other kids, it's a private conference after the class or at a separate time when you're able to you know, meet with that child privately and say to them, look, you were out of your seat 22 times. Most often kids are gonna say, no, I wasn't. That's way too many. And when you show them the data, again, we get back to the data. So why don't we try to improve this? Now, a lot of times you say to a kid, what would you like to improve? And they say zero. You say, okay, zero is a great goal to get to, but realistically, let's try for seven or eight times. The teacher's happy. It's not perfect, but it's a heck of a lot better than 22. And the kid's now more focused in learning. And then you're celebrating this. You're pointing it out. You're charting this very visually for that child. Visual learning uh, for children that are traumatized is a very powerful tool to see that in a more that concept in a much more concrete way. So those are just a couple of those examples that uh, that tie into what you said. Oh, that's fantastic, um, Michael. I was, I was think, reflecting on a conversation I was recently having with a principal, um, uh, and she was the principal of a, of a special school that works just with children with autism, and she was talking about 
how hard it was to gather that data, <laughs> that kind of behavioral data. And, um, you know, and, and from Kay and I's experience, you know, one of the things we see is that things are really heightened in the classroom sometimes, you know, particularly kids who are kind of acting out. So the child's heightened, the teacher's heightened because they're trying to manage risks and manage the rest of the class as well. And so even practically, if there was time, like psychologically, I think it feels like there's not enough space in your head for to to gather any sort of information really rather than just have this sort of general reflection um so i was i was curious about your thoughts about gathering that data but also what what were some of those key ingredients to have those incremental successful sort of moments with students yeah so first of all in terms of the uh, gathering of the data you're absolutely right teachers are managing 20 or 30 students. Some of them have behavioral challenges, learning challenges. And it's one of those things where you've got four kids with their hand up waiting for your help. And how are you managing all this? So one of the practical ways to do this, and I, and I get into this in the text as well, is that you can't do this for 40 minutes. That's, that's an unreasonable amount of time. But just like any study, you don't need to get a whole 40 minutes 100% of the time. Take a 10 minute period three times a week you're not announcing this to the student initially. That's called establishing a baseline and gathering this data authentically. And then you take that 10 minutes and you simply multiply it out to four. You don't have to tell the kid that you only did 10 minutes. You need to give them kid language to explain, listen, you, did, you were out of your seat an average of 22 times. So maybe he was only out six times, but because of the way the number computed it, it turned out to be 22 or 24 and you can explain that. So, and the best time to do that is when kids are generally working independently. And there is almost always a time in class when kids have been assigned work, you've presented the concept, you've, uh, you've given them some direction, and now they're working independently. You also see this a lot more with self-paced instruction with devices that most kids now have in their hands in the Western world. They have a computer device in their hand. And so they're being able to work more independently. And this allows the teacher that opportunity. Refresh my memory on the second part of that again. I was just, I was curious about making those moments successful. I think the data collection is such a practical, useful piece for the teachers, I think. Um, was there any other kind of key kind of teacher related things that help with those incremental gains, do you think, Michael? I think, you know, it, it, it's interesting. I talked about being private with the child, but what you're going to find the child doing is announcing their success because that's what kids do. Guess what I did today? And you start really giving them some incentives. Kids all have something that they're interested in doing. I call this the $6 t-shirt concept. If you've ever been to an event and you see these uh, things that they're shooting t-shirts out of, everybody goes nuts over these t-shirts. But if you walk by that t-shirt in a department store, you say, I'm never going to wear that ugly shirt. It's the psychology of it. So we need to tap some of that psychology and really engage kids in this incentive-based concept. It works the same way with adults. How many of us don't want a credit card with rewards on it instead of the credit card that doesn't? That's an incentivized system. We need to give kids the chance to succeed and then celebrate that with them and incentivize them. Incentivizing gives them also a sense of ownership. They're seeking this goal in, in order to achieve something, which, by the way, is uh, an external concept. Eventually will become an internalized goal uh, as children develop and grow and, and become better equipped to manage their own self-regulating skills. 
Thank you, Michael. Um, I, I have to ask you, I'm sure there are people listening to this at the moment who are breathing very heavy and getting quite frustrated hearing about rewards and uh, consequences and things. And there's a real, you know, I think part of what we try to do with the program is have quite a deep understanding of how incentives work and how they work well and how they need to be delivered relationally. Um, but there's a real sort of pushback and concern about it being used punitively and, and in a way to kind of control children like the kind of lab rats and and then behavioral theory in itself is you know kind of evil almost <laughs> inherently what what are your thoughts around those mindsets because I, I think people go either way I think they they either completely let that stuff go and and, and it's and there's no real plan apart from this general concept of being kind and forgiving um, which is not sustainable that we've found and, and and then there's this other end where it gets used in quite a punitive controlling and unfair sort of way but what what is a helpful way for educators and administrators to think about finding that balance and thinking about and keeping the student at the center of that do you think Michael? Yeah so a lot of that is choice driven right so I, and I use the example of a diner earlier right there can be 15 things on this menu that the child can choose from that's incentivizing them or they can create some of their own ideas. These should never be expensive. Teachers don't make enough money to be going out and buying things every weekend for, for kids. It, that's why I use the term $6 t-shirt. The idea is that these are often not even items that have a, a financial cost. It might be two minutes at the end of a Friday afternoon. And don't make it big because making one of the mistakes I made my first year is I wanted to make everything gigantic. And then I was losing everything. And I realized, oh my gosh, I don't need to make it this big. It can be that two minutes on a Friday afternoon, not 20 minutes or, or you know, not two minutes every day. That's too excessive. And they're actually going to appreciate it less too. So there's some psychology behind that. I mentioned earlier about the credit card concept. You know, I've had adults come to me and say, why are we rewarding kids for doing things that they should already be doing? So I have two responses to that. Do you have a credit card with the rewards on it? And everybody does, <laughs> or at least everybody I've met does. And the reason they do is it incentivizes them. So why are we not treating children with the same option to be incentivized? You know, so that's the first concept. And then the other idea here is uh, sometimes you'll say, well, kids should have learned this from their parents or they should have learned this at home. And my response always is, you're absolutely right. They should have learned it from their parents, but they didn't. And we can't do anything about that. What we can do is manage what they're doing here for the next six or seven hours and hopefully help them go home and be able to start self-regulating this because they're not going to learn it from someone else. And so there's, there is that recognition uh, you know, when, you, when you bring up a point like that. The other thing I'll often say to teachers is, look, nothing else worked for this kid, right? Nothing else worked for this kid. Why not try something different? What have we got to lose? If it doesn't work, then we throw it out too, just like everything else. That's the whole logic of that stacking uh, premise that, that I mentioned earlier. And then my, you know, one of the things that uh, you know, happened early in my administrative career is I had a teacher come to me and she said, I want this kid out of my class. He's terrible. He's a bad behavior problem. He is disruptive. I can't teach. And by the way, this was a very, very good teacher who came to me frustrated like this. And I simply said to her, okay. And she looked at me and she was waiting for the other shoe to drop. And she literally was, it looked like a movie scene. She was backing out of my office, waiting for the other shoe to drop. And she said, so that's it? I said, yeah, that's it. Just put in the, 
schedule ch change request form and I'll make it happen. So, oh, but there is one more thing. I said, do you want to be like every other adult in his life that has given up on him? Because that's what he's expecting. Or do you want to do something different and prove to him that you're going to be the exception? She slumped down in her, in her chair and she said, I get it. And do you know that she made a lot of progress with that kid that year? Now, that doesn't work for every kid all the time. But if it works for some much of the time, isn't it worth it? When I tell teachers that, they always, at least to this point, have bought in. That's great. Thank you, Michael. That was a great example. I'll throw it to Kay to see if she has any comments or questions. What you um, described um, behaviour-wise is the foundation of the behaviour, um, positive behaviour support that is largely used here um, in most of our schools. And I often find it interesting, Michael, and I agree with you that um, here, in my experience, is the case that teachers um, tend to be um, guiding and facilitators in instruction, but they're very much behaviourists when it comes to um, children's behaviour. And they, as a behaviour specialist, I had questions like that constantly. Um, I'm not going to bribe him to do his work, you know, and I'd say, Bribery is when you pay somebody to do something they don't want to do. This is this is not bribery. This is reinforcing the behaviour you want to see. You know, and it's a very difficult, um, very difficult concept to get your head around when your delivery of your instruction is sitting in a different philosophical space. Um, and yeah, it's it's. Um, very interesting to um, also hear you, um, I guess, reinforce the fact that incentivizing children, it's a bit like, you know, it's a bit like the age old analogy of, you know, you go and you, you buy your toddler this really expensive gift and they spend the whole Christmas day playing with the cardboard box, you know. Um, whenever I've personally asked a very challenging child, the thing that comes up more time, more than anything in my experience is what they really love is just having lunch with their teacher without all the other kids or just sitting beside their teacher for morning tea. That's it. That's enough. Or, you know, and so it's not this, We've yeah, we've got to dispel this whole incentivising thing means you need a class shop of objects you know that it's just not it's the relationship stuff they just want to sit and have a talk to you about who they are not what they're doing in class or um who what their dog is or what their dog's name is you know just that really important stuff somebody just to listen and tell yeah, them they're okay you know that's um, all about so it so thank you for mentioning that again because it's always really conflictual here um, when we are trying to manage challenging behaviour. And I think teachers need to give themselves permission to go, okay, it's okay for me to praise and incentivise children. There's nobody, you know, who are sitting on my shoulder going, oh, you shouldn't be doing this, it's 2022, you know, <laughs> sort of thing. So, yeah, that's great. Thanks. Yeah, I just wanted to comment on that. So uh, the first thing you mentioned was great because you talked about attention. That's the number one thing that people want and desire. And when kids have difficulty, they know how to get negative attention. But if we offer them that option for positive attention, 
then very often they're going to take it. It may take a little bit of time, by the way, because still, we still need to build that trust piece, but it does work. The other thing you mentioned was praise. And praise is a really interesting thing that I share with my staff. We use positive behavior support here too. And there was a study by John Gottman, a researcher years ago who studied longitudinally successful marriages of all things. And he wanted to know what the difference was. And the number one component he came up with was that the praise to criticism ratio between spouses was three or more to one. And what have we done in effective classrooms? We've moved that into effective classrooms. And guess what? It's working. If you go to YouTube, or of course, there's also research studies now that show this or reinforce his previous studies. Uh, there are some strategy ideas around uh, positive behavior support and this ideology that if we're praising more frequently than criticizing, and that, that praise has to be authentic, by the way. It can be small. I really like the way you came in quietly today, as an example. But it needs to be authentic. It can't be something that's, that you're just making up. You know, they, kids, kids tune right into that. They, they, it has to be believable. And so that's a very powerful thing, too, as, as part of this process. Yeah, no, that's great, Michael. Thank you for that. And I was thinking about that story you're telling about the um, conversation you had with the teacher and um, we've been focusing a lot on the student and that kind of relational sort of focus and one of the sort of pushbacks I suppose in in our kind of area has been this idea of you know really guilting teachers into doing the right thing uh, which I don't think we're actually doing but I, I think it's really coming from a place where they're acknowledging those sort of systemic pressures you know I think teachers just have a lot on and a lot to do and they're clearly you know not remunerated enough for it I think um, or acknowledged for it um, how do you see the role of us taking care of teachers you know how do you see self-care fitting in with that in terms of managing those sort of priorities while while still staying sort of empathetic and hopeful when it comes to students yeah self-care of teachers is so critical that when I say to my staff and, and in presentations, is that quite frankly, we need to be selfish about that. And here's why we need to be selfish about that. It's a lot like the concept of taking the oxygen mask first and then handing it to someone else. If we don't take care of ourselves, we can't possibly then be able to assist or help someone else. We have to be situated in a place of wellness in order to then be able to do the same for kids. Teachers have a hard job today and it only got harder during and post pandemic. So now here we are, managing all of these challenges. I don't know what you're hearing in, in uh, down under, but here, you know, the, the whole mask debate thing and, and things like that, that teachers don't have time to get involved in this, nor should they get involved in these political debates. They need to go do their job, which is to teach and help children succeed. That's the bottom line, that's their job. And so I always emphasize that to them. And one of the ways to remove themselves from that is to get themselves into this place of self-care. And there are some simple, techniques, which I can, I can elaborate on. Uh, I mentioned a few uh, here, but of course there's more detail in, in the text. One of them is something we carry with us everywhere and that's breathing techniques. There's a method called the 478 method, which if you Google it, you'll see it everywhere. And there's even video samples and everything. The idea of the 478 is how many seconds you're breathing in and out. And the idea is that you're changing this up. And the reason you're changing the numerical value up is that you're actually then moving your diaphragm around, which is a lot like a massage for your diaphragm. And what does that do? Like any massage, it makes you feel a lot better. 
And it also helps reduce some of that anxiety and uh, duress or distress that teachers are constantly faced with because of these demands, because of the challenges, uh, and because of some of the political minefields that we've, you know, uh, unfortunately been thrown into more recently. So the other idea is tonal melody. Uh, there's a lot of great stuff out there. There was actually a, a, a song called Weightless, which if you Google that, was written alongside scientists because it was hitting the perfect tonal balance to reduce anxiety. And in the study uh, participants that were involved, it reduced it by 65%. Now you had to listen to it for a minimum of five minutes to have this effect start to take place. So there is that idea that you need to be, uh, you, you need to give a little bit of time for something like that. The breathing idea is, is a little bit quicker. But there's a lot of things out there like this. One of the most satisfying things for teachers and for anybody is deep work. If they're experiencing the ability to not be distracted by all the other external stimuli. And I talk about something called coffee house sounds, which if you ever listen to this ambient noise with headphones, and you can, again, find this on YouTube. There's like, I was just looking at one earlier that's 10 hours. I don't know anybody that's listening uh, to, to work for 10 hours. I'm impressed with them that they are because that means they're probably doing work. And what it does is it creates this distracted focus, as I like to call it. It's this idea that it's distracting you away from all of these external things like your phone, like the kid yelling, like the, you know, whatever's happening. And it steers you into a complete focused mindset. And again, that takes about five minutes as well before you start to settle into this. And it's this idea that and I'm going to use an American analogy here. If you go into a Starbucks, you hear a chatter. You hear this, you know, unrecognizable conversation and, and clatter and chatter going on and it really soothes your mind and gets you into this sweet spot where you're not distracted away from the thing you really want to achieve yet distracted enough away from these exterior stimuli that are unnecessary and disruptive so this gets you into this deep work mindset and gets you focused and that's very satisfying so just that idea helps you address some of your uh, your wellness so there's a lot of examples like this. And like I said, I just wanted to highlight a few to give you an idea of some of the things teachers can, and by the way, should be doing to take care of themselves. Because if they don't take care of themselves first, they're not going to take care of kids. Yeah, the, it's fascinating acoustics and sound-based research. I, I know there's a lot of debate about polyvagal theory in terms of the research and whatnot, but it's very powerful, isn't it, in terms of being able to offer engagement and regulation and focus. Um, I think it's great. I'll get Kai to uh, jump in. I, I think research is really, you know, part of what we're trying to do is translate some of this research into practice, Michael. So I'd love to talk to you, ask you a bit more about that, but I'll, I'll just get uh, Kay a chance to sort of respond to what you've said. I'm all good. We'll okay. keep going. Thank Great. you. All right. Great. Um, so, uh, could Michael, could you talk through the um, Pygmalion study and Werner's work about working with at-risk students in Hawaii? Because I think that's really interesting. And how you've kind of thought about these ideas and how you think that translates into um, classroom practice. Absolutely. So the Pygmalion study is this really cool study that was done over half a century ago. And keep that in mind as you hear about it, because it sounds slightly uh, at, like an ethical issue today when you hear about what they did. So what happened was these researchers, Werner and uh, decided to basically, uh, I'm sorry, Werner is uh, the next study, which we'll talk about. But in this study, Rosenthal uh, looked at a, a class. And what he did was he said to teachers, okay, I want you to know that about a fifth of these kids, 20% of these kids, they're gifted. And I just want you to be aware of that. The others are 
average to below average. And this was in the beginning of the school year. At the end of the school year, they measured the performance of these kids. And the kids who were uh, noted as gifted performed in the gifted range. And the kids who were average to below average performed below that, much below that. Here's the, here's the rub. Nobody was gifted. They were all average to either slightly above or slightly below average students. So, so much of this had to do with how the teachers treated these kids, the expectations they held for them, the drive to keep pushing for more information from kids who they thought were gifted. All of this reinforced the ability to get more information and get kids learning more, but also built the confidence of the kids. Now, this is a lot like the, uh, there was a study done uh, a few years ago that uh, was picked up on by uh, a Canadian group and it was about feedback. And there was one group of, of, of people in a corporation who were given positive feedback, but in a very neutral or sort of you know, bland tone. And then there was a group that was given some criticism, but in a very positive, supportive and nurturing way. And at the end of this, they asked who was more satisfied with the response. And do you know it was the people who were given the criticism, but were given that criticism in a positive and supportive way. Like, I know you can work your way out of this and some much more uh, basic psychological ideas. So there was this idea that uh, so much of how we approach kids, not necessarily what we say, but how we approach them has this massive impact on how they perform. And the same idea works for the study you mentioned uh, with Werner. Werner did this really cool study uh, and it was neat because it was on the island of Kauai, which is one of the most isolated islands in the Hawaiian chain. So there was these 800 kids that were born that year and they decided to track these kids over time and see what was happening to them. And they identified that about a third of these kids were at-risk kids. They were not receiving enough uh, parental support at home. They had uh, economic poverty and they had some at-risk behaviors they were showing. And so these kids were starting to display things that suggested they were gonna be disadvantaged kids. They were not gonna succeed in life and they were gonna struggle. Well, about a third of those kids persevered beyond that and ended up being very successful in life and leading normal lives and having families and all of this. And some of the basic tenets were that they were eventually able to get affiliated with an organization, be it a church or a coach or a group or somebody who was uh, you know, getting them involved in something. Another one was a mentor because a mentor could effectively replace that sort of adult positive presence. And so there was these factors and there's a few others that, that did this that showed that and it didn't all have to happen by a certain window and then it was suddenly closed either. These were happening throughout the young lives of kids from their very early teens all the way up into their uh, early, excuse me, even before their teens, preteen, all the way up into their early 20s. That it vacillated and these windows of opportunity opened. And when they were able to seize on them and be given this opportunity, they were able to excel. So we can take that and apply a lot of that to our work with disadvantaged and or, because it's often synonymous, traumatized populations of kids. Yeah, I think that's a great story because I think it a lot of this work is around teacher mindsets and our expectations going in, I think. Um, and how powerfully that shapes um, what we expect and what we do. And, uh, and we often talk about a strengths-based focus, you know, keep, keep in view what it is that you like about the child and what they do well. Um, and I think 
that plays a very powerful role in you know how you approach them um, and help them with all of this stuff. I think um, I wanted to ask you about your thoughts about um, uh, technology and social media and all of that that plays out. Um, we don't talk about that enough on the podcast, actually. But um, I was curious about your take on that, Michael, and how it um, intersects with some of the challenges we see at school. Oh, it's huge. Uh, I wrote an article that referred to some of the social media challenges. And one of the things I highlighted was a study out of the University of Buffalo that showed that social media makes us less intelligent. Now, that sounds like a very strong uh, statement. And you might argue that there's some counterways that social media uh, can make us more intelligent, like when we get valuable information from someone or something like that. A lot of this is wrapped around some of the misinformation that's out there, but also some of the negative consequences of it. There's an old saying that Teddy Roosevelt, a famous president in the U.S., said, uh, comparison is the thief of joy. When you think about that, it's the idea that's happening on social media today. We're constantly comparing our lives to these fictional, glorified, perfect lives. You know, the perfect family with the perfect house, with the perfect car, with and Everything's being highlighted as if it's, it's really perfect. And of course, nobody has a perfect life like that. So it's really important, first of all, to have some awareness about that. By the way, this is also really important for adults when I talk about the self-care thing, as well as kids. So this is, everybody's uh, in, impacted by this. And there was a study done a couple of years ago, 2019, where they looked at Instagram uh, fiction versus reality. And when they showed young ladies in particular had the biggest impact on this the difference between someone who is glorified as this beautiful human being, fictional, and the reality of, oh, they have some acne and they have a little bit of a belly. And I didn't see that in the uh, other picture. It's this idea that we do create these fictional lives. And it's because comparison is a thief of joy. We want to be compared and we want to always be keeping up with the Joneses, as we might say. And the reality is, is there are no Joneses. We're all somebody else uh, just trying to keep up with what we think is a reality. And when you teach kids in a very structured way, this reality and show them these fictional fantasy versus reality shots and, and some of this research too, by the way, especially with older kids, this works really well with older kids, uh, pretty much middle school through 12th grade can, can understand this concept that, oh, they're fooling me. This isn't really real. It really helps their well-being and their balance. So the other part of the problem with social media, of course, is because there's so much negative chatter on that. It can be very disruptive and very distracting. And of course, when you're looking at a computer screen or a phone, you're often looking way too much at something called blue light. And blue light has this tendency to keep us up. It's one of the things we see when we get up in the morning and get exposed to, but we get overexposed to it because of the digital format that we live in these days. So you can do something simple like buy a blue light screen uh, protector, which I, by the way, have on my computer right now. And I also have it on my phone. And believe it or not, blue light disrupts that circadian rhythm. So these all these things that have to do with being on screens all the time, it can be very disruptive. I mentioned that coffee house chatter earlier and the tonal melody and things like that. Those are the reverse of this. This is the good side of technology. These are the things we can leverage and help kids learn to leverage. One of the biggest things I say in my book is, we can help these kids with all of these things and help them sort of develop post-traumatic growth symptoms instead of post-traumatic stress. 
But the reality is, is the best thing to do is do that and then teach them to self-regulate those skills. So these are some ideas we need to teach them. And I think those are some of the solutions to that. Yeah, thank you, Michael. That's great. And I think uh, I, I was struck by, by how important that um, I think we say media literacy, you know, this idea of being critical about what it is that you're consuming. And, and I was thinking about that last part where you're talking about post-traumatic growth. I think equally, you know, the Internet's a tool, isn't it? So I think we can if we can share stories to normalize struggling at school, um, normalize this sort of having trouble getting to school, I think then you know, I think children feel less alone with that. And, and, and I think equally by doing this podcast, I think it's is that we can help teachers feel less alone in kind of really difficult classrooms that they're in or, uh, you know, really difficult situations or being the only person who's flying the trauma informed practice flag in wherever they are. Um, thank you so much, Michael. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. I wanted to finish by asking you about what you're currently curious about in your work today. Well, actually, I started writing a new book, which I'm under contract for, and it's called Radical Principles. And the idea is, you know, I'm not your average principal. I think you probably figured that out by this point in the interview. And there's a lot of bureaucracy institutionalized into education. And it's really important for us to learn how to work around and sometimes through that. I actually suggest through some research and, again, anecdotal, you know, my style tends to weave science and story together. So that there's this very, uh, you know, convincing argument that, oh, this is, this is a practical way to approach this and we can begin employing it. So I'm really having a lot of fun writing that because it's about some of those things in particular that create equity issues that are so inbred and, and ingrained in, in, in the institution of education, which by proxy is our culture, uh, that we have to start to figure out ways to unravel that. And leaders have a responsibility and educators, by by extension, have a responsibility to do this in order to level the playing field for disadvantaged kids. Right. Thank you. I'm glad we've got to talk about some systemic equity issues there to finish up. Um, thanks, Michael. How can people contact you? Where can they find your work? Yeah, so there's a couple of different ways. First of all, I have a website, mikesmicrominute.com. That's mikesmicrominute.com. Uh, Twitter is probably the easiest way, Gaskell, M. Gaskell. Uh, and I don't know why my name's twice in there. You know how they sometimes just give you a name. It was close enough. So that's what I took. Uh, and then of course, uh, I can also be found on Instagram at mgaskell0. Excellent. We'll put those links up um, with the show notes as well. Thank you so much, Michael. This was so fun. It was really good, uh, nice to hear the synergies in our work and it'd be great to keep in touch. And I'm sure the people listening uh, really appreciate your stories, but really the practical sort of advice I think you've offered for people to keep going. Um, I'd encourage people to check out Michael's book. It's um, a fantastic resource. Um, thank you, Michael. We appreciate your time. Thank you. It's, you're welcome. It's been my pleasure meeting you both. That was our interview with Dr. Michael Gaskell. To learn more about trauma-informed education, visit our website, tipbs.com. That's T-I-P-B-S If you enjoyed this episode, consider providing us a rating and review on your podcast provider. Your feedback makes all the difference. Thank you for listening. See you next time.